0: Hello and welcome to another ABI podcast. Our topic today is the ABI Commission on Consumer Bankruptcies Recommendations on Student Loans. My name is Bob Lawless and I served as the reporter for the commission. The commission was charged by ABI's board of directors with recommending changes to the bankruptcy code that could be implemented within the existing system. It started work at the end of 2016 and was composed of three committees plus a 22 person commission. The persons on the committees in the commission were broadly representative, both geographically and by area of practice. There were creditors' lawyers, persons who represented mortgage lenders, car lenders, credit card companies. There were debtors' lawyers, there were trustees, both chapter seven and chapter 13, bankruptcy judges and academics on the committees and the commission. The commission's report is a group law reform project. It does not necessarily reflect the views of any one individual, but was a reflection of the Commission as a whole. It does not reflect the reviews of any individual, and I should point out that it includes today's panelists. The Commission worked by consensus where possible, uh, where votes were taken, nothing passed the Commission or is in the Commission r- report that did not receive the support of at least two-thirds of the Commissioners. The report itself was issued on April 10th, 2019, and it is available for free for download from the we- from a website, Consumer Commission, Dot I'm joined today by three of the commissioners uh, who are going to talk about the commission's recommendations on student loans. First, Ed Bolts is a partner in the law offices of John T. Orcutt in Durham, North Carolina. He is a certified specialist in consumer bankruptcy law who represents clients in Chapter 7 and Chapter 13 as well as related consumer rights litigation. He is a past president of the National Association of Consumer Bankruptcy Attorneys and continues to serve on its board of directors. Dalia Jimenez is a professor of law at the University of California, Irvine, where she teaches bankruptcy, contracts, and consumer law. She is a principal investigator on the Financial Distress Research Project, a large-scale randomized controlled trial evaluation about the effectiveness of legal interventions and counseling to help individuals in financial distress. She was also a part of ABI's 2018 40 Under 40 class. Finally, Bruce Markell is the Professor of Bankruptcy Law and Practice at Northwestern University in Chicago, Illinois. He is a former bankruptcy judge for the District of Nevada, as well as a former member of the Bankruptcy Appellate Panel for the Ninth Circuit. He is a contributor to and a member of the Editorial Advisory Board for Collier and Bankruptcy. Welcome to all of
1: you. Thank
0: you. The student loan loan recommendation uh, was the first recommendation in the report. It leads the report. And as we're going to discuss in more detail, the Commission made recommendations for statutory changes, for changes to existing administrative procedure, and for changes to judicial interpretations of the existing statute. But Dahlia, perhaps first I can turn to you before we get to the recommendations themselves. Student loans are in the news for maybe more right now than any other consumer debt issue. Why do you think that is?
2: Um, Well, I think it's in the news because uh, roughly one in five Americans have a student loan. Um, Eight and a half million uh, borrowers are in default, and another five million are behind at least two payments and highly at risk of default. Um, And the growth of those numbers in the last 15 years has been staggering. Um, Just one statistic. Consider that the average individual borrower student loan balance increased by 300% in the last 14 years. Um, There's also a lot of evidence that this debt is dragging down the economy and that moreover, people are suffering. Um, As a report notes, uh, studies link student debt to lower levels of home ownership and car purchases, higher household financial distress, delayed marriage, and lower probability of going to graduate school. And finally, there's abundant evidence that student debt is increasing the gender and racial disparities in this country. Women make up half of the population owe two thirds of outstanding student loan debt. Data shows that 12 years after they entered college, the median white borrower has paid down 35% of their original loan balance as compared to the median African-Americans' loan balance, which had grown to 113%. So this is why we have presidential candidates like Elizabeth Warren proposing to wipe out a large percentage of outstanding debt and Senate and House bills being considered right now to deal with student debt and bankruptcy.
0: Yeah, I think student loan debt is, is the second uh, largest amount of consumer debt outstanding right now. Isn't that right?
2: hmm Yeah, right after mortgages.
0: Yeah, more than credit cards. There's more student loan debt than uh, even credit card debt now.
2: That's right.
3: That's right. And car debt even now.
0: I, I'm sorry, Ed?
3: Car debt also.
0: And more than car debt, yes. Yes, that's right. That's right. So, Ed, um, let me ask about uh, why the report addressed student loans. It was a report on bankruptcy reform, Um, Did it make sense to address the bankruptcy issues about student loan debt um, separately from broader issues in student loans?
3: Well, I think the the reason for that is because student loans are, in general, a huge issue and and encompass so many areas of the economy and social um, issues. As Dahlia mentioned, it it cuts across the board for almost all Americans. But bankruptcy needs to be a part of um, a, and a significant component of the solutions proposed. It's not going to solve all of the problems about higher education in America and how we fund and um, encourage people in, in, in the career paths that they they look toward. But it's it's an important part because it helps those who are in the most dire financial straits at the you know, when they when they when all of the other options that are available, whether these are the income-driven repayment plans or refinancing or other options uh, have failed them, bankruptcy needs to be a solution because this has been something that, as we'll talk about, has changed over the years and gotten much harder uh, to the point where it's otherwise, people get into a a situation of hopelessness and that's where bankruptcy should um, be able to be a solution.
0: And there needs to be a way for consumers to have, have leverage when they go to negotiate as well. And one of the things I always think about is bankruptcy is, is something that gives consumers that leverage to be able to try to do out-of-bankruptcy workouts. Do you think that's right?
3: I think that's absolutely right. Because as, as despite what there often are fears that people will skip merrily into bankruptcy without any consideration, for, for my clients, the people I see day in and day out, Bankruptcy is really their last option, but it is it needs to be a, a viable option because it keeps all the parties honest and it 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 stops the the whether it's the Department of Education or a private student lender, it it, it it eventually stops them from attempting to collect on debts that are otherwise never going to be paid on. There's a degree of foolishness and waste even in the in, in the income driven repayment plans where someone will pay zero dollars a month for twenty years, which the point of that is is beyond me, and I think beyond many of the people who work on this report. Yeah.
0: So maybe we could spend a moment before we get into the report's recommendations about how the law should change, to what the law is right now. And 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 Bruce, I was hoping maybe to turn to you to, to for a, a, an explanation of what the current rules are for student loans and bankruptcy, and as well as maybe how those rules have changed over the years.
1: Uh, Sure. Um, Well, the rules actually are 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 simple to state, but probably difficult to uh, apply in in a lot of cases. I mean, the focus of all of the student loan um, concern in bankruptcy focuses on a particular section, five twenty three a eight, and because that's in chapter five, that means it's going to be applicable to chapter seven debtors, uh, chapter thirteen debtors, even chapter eleven individuals. Um, And it also, um, because it is not contained in 523C, uh, again, just to be technical, it means that the dischargeability or non-dischargeability is something that can be determined not only in bankruptcy court, but state court as well. So what it does, to get back to the actual rules, 523A8 says a student loan, either (coughs) made by or... Uh, guaranteed by a governmental unit, or any qualified educational loan, which includes private educational vendors, is non-dischargeable in bankruptcy unless uh, it imposes an undue hardship on the debtor and the debtor's dependents. Um, and so the in terms of the leverage that you were talking about earlier, the only leverage that debtors really have is to try and indicate an undue hardship. And as we'll talk about now and, and later in the podcast, Uh, That has been the subject to a lot of varying interpretations as to what undue hardship means. And uh, the heart, or or at least one of the key parts of the Commission's report, is is how we think or we thought that this provision should be interpreted going forward. And I'll kind of have some comments on that later in uh, the podcast. Now, the leverage issue has actually been shrinking over time. Um, You asked about how the rules have changed over the years. Well, when originally when, uh, well, uh, we can go back a long time, but I'll start with the 1978 code. Originally, there, there still wasn't undue hardship, but there was also a five-year limit. That is to say, if any educational loan was over five years, um, it could be discharged. Congress then extended that to seven years uh, in the late 80s, early 90s, and then zero, in addition, originally student loans were dischargeable in Chapter 13 under the super discharge. That has been taken away as well. And finally, in 2005, up until 2005, 523A8 just covered loans, um, generally speaking, by governmental units or that were guaranteed by governmental units or made uh, by the institution itself. In 2005, they changed that to include any qualified educational loan um and if you run through the definition of that you wind up now including lots of private uh, parties uh, which uh, can make those loans without any necessary connection to a government guarantee
0: so so thanks i mean i think that's a great summary of of where where we're at now um of course, the commission, again, made recommendations on, on where the law might go. And, and, Dahlia, could you talk a little bit about the commission's recommendations on changing when student loans could become dischargeable?
2: Um, yeah, happy to. So um, the recommendation from the commission would basically limit the scope of 523-A8 um, from when it currently is. Basically, the commission's recommending limiting the exception to discharge to educational loans that meet on three criteria, one, that they were made, insured or guaranteed by a governmental unit, such as a state or or the federal government. um, So no private loans. Um, Two, that they were incurred for the debtor's own education. um, So no Parent PLUS loans, for instance, would be covered by this uh, presumption of non dischargeability And three, that they first became due less than seven years before the bankruptcy case was filed. In, regardless of suspension of payments uh, for forbearance, deferment, or any other issues. So, kind of going back to the '90s, um, as uh, Bruce was saying. Um, and so, loans meeting these three criteria would be presumptively non dischargeable But also, like in previous iterations of Act 23A8, a debtor could become that pre- overcome that presumption by a showing of undue hardship.
0: Yeah. So, why seven years uh, for the presumption of non dischargeability
2: um, so seven is sort of like a, a very significant number in many religions and other things, and I want, and, and it was the last um, uh, number in the statute before you know before it was um, taken away, and so this was a compromise really, um, you know as you mentioned Bob, the, the commission was made up of a very representative um, uh, group between professionals who represent business and consumer interests, various parts of the country, et cetera. So I think we you know we we um, there were a variety of opinions. Uh, you know some people thought that the loan should be dischargeable immediately like um, there's a bill right now or multiple bills in Congress um, uh, Durbin, senator Durbin um, uh, Congress um, and Nadler and Catco so that would basically do that strike by 2388. eight um, others wanted five years um, others wanted longer and so we we just settled on seven
1: um- I would also add to that that most student loans, at least at initiation, have 10-year maturities. And so when you talk about seven years, you're actually talking about um, something that is that is a vast, is a large majority, supermajority of the number of a, at least a originally scheduled maturity.
0: Yeah, I wanted mm-hmm. to also throw something else out. Um, you know, this idea that some people might be concerned if we make student loans, uh dischargeable after a period of time people are going to rush into bankruptcy court and it's an easy way to get out of student loans but is that really the way the bankruptcy system works that just anybody can come in and get their loans discharged
3: i think bob the thing is to remember is that bankruptcy as we we know from the inside is not easy and it it, it involves uh, a deep look at someone's income and their ability to pay it also, unlike with how student loans are treated outside of bankruptcy, particularly government student loans, it also looks towards their assets. Um, whether they and the more assets they have, the more they they're required to pay, and may both their income and assets may force somebody into a Chapter 13 plan, which would be another three to five years of payment on those student loans. That beyond that seven years, so. This is not something that would be t- would be t- undertaken lightly, and in many ways would subject a borrower to a greater degree of scrutiny than they would face outside of bankruptcy uh, before they're able to get that discharge.
2: I would also add, actually, that um, you know people forget often; they think bankruptcy is like this uh, sort of easy thing. Even after you know, after you file, like the world is is just perfect, um, but that's not the case at all, as we know, of course. Um, First of all, there's going to be a big hit on a person's credit report, and of course, if they already had lots of debt problems, that hit is not as significant. But those are the people for whom bankruptcy is appropriate. People who are just trying to get their student loans discharged, you know, and have sort of no other issues, um, are going to be, uh, you know, are, are going to suffer um, in terms of any other credit they want to get, um, even insurance costs, um, renting, obviously buying a home. Um, so it's, I don't think it's something that people take lightly even if they were trying to be strategic. Bruce might want to add about judges.
1: (laughs) Well, I mean, the thing I would add with that is, is in the years I was on the bench, I rarely saw the uh, strategic uh, debtor who uh, was trying to game the system. The vast, overwhelming vast majority of people are like what uh, Dallier and Ed have described. People for whom their present circumstances are not wholly, if if not even partially, uh, their fault, trying to become, if you will, productive citizens again. And quite frankly, the Bankruptcy Code has plenty of tools, as, as Ed has summarized, uh, to capture those who want to abuse the system Um And I think those are adequate to the task if if one concern you have is someone who's just going to incur a loan and then walk away from it.
0: Yeah, but Bruce, so this maybe takes us uh, to to the idea, well, why didn't the commission just go down the road of eliminating non-dischargeability altogether for student loans? There's a bill pending in Congress that proposes doing exactly that. And I I think many people see the commission's recommendation as as a, a Substantial departure from existing law, but the commission could have even gone further. And, and what was the commission's reasoning for not going further?
1: Well, I mean, essentially practical, and in, in kind of, if you will, two 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 main reasons. One, um, uh, the the educational loan system right now is, for better or worse, is a is a critical component of the higher edu- of the funding of higher education. Um, and it would it would really to unless you carefully and thoughtfully implemented um, um, a cutback on that, you would you would have untold consequences in higher education, which would not be good for anybody. Secondly, and, and at a level of policy, I mean, it sounds a little silly, but you can look at an educational loan like a purchase money security interest on future income. I mean, we've always uh, thought that loans that enable people to acquire things should have a different status and here the different status is hopefully uh, a better uh capacity for income a better capacity for for personal improvement and one that quite frankly you can't repossess um uh, once it's given it's uh, impossible uh to give back and thus the moral hazard that's involved in allowing someone just to take a loan to better themselves than walk and then walk away from it, even if it would be difficult, uh, was a policy uh, concern uh, when coupled with the practical concern that I don't think the Commission wanted to cross.
2: Um, can Probably I just it. add one thing? I, I think another way to think about it too. I mean, I think, you know, it's a, it's a compromise between um, the current view uh, in statute, I think, and in a variety of statutes of, of the way we're funding higher education that. Um, higher education is is not only, and perhaps in some views, not at all a public good. Um, and I think that's a little bit of how Bruce was just describing it. I would think, it, I think about it as, you know, yeah, um, a, a, a PMSI that once given you can't repossess, but really you can uh, also think about it as one in which for people in our city that we're talking about here, the value of that collateral um, has dropped or really did not materialize as expected, right? Because the people we're talking about are ones for whom the bet of let's um, take these loans and, and follow this educational program and, and hopefully get a better life, that bet didn't work out.
0: Yeah, and I, I we've been talking about the Chapter 7 rules primarily, um, the non-dischargeability rules, although, as, as Bruce pointed out, they apply across all the chapters. Ed, um, part of uh, the, the student loan story is the Chapter 13, 13 story, the, the debt repayment, the um, Plan story. Um, We have, I think, going to have audience of of widely varying expertise on this. So, could you talk a little bit about the Chapter Thirteen issues uh, and student loans and what the Commission recommends to change there?
3: Sure. And this is a sort of a complement and alternative to the dischargeability of student loans, obviously. Um, But starting back in 2007, uh, Congress, uh, with the Department of Education, has created several different income-driven repayment plans where borrowers are paying their student loans not based on the amount that they necessarily owe, but based on their their income. And as these have grown in usage by borrowers, they, start, they started to come into conflict when those borrowers also needed to file a Chapter 13 bankruptcy because... Early on, the Department of Education took a position that they didn't want to allow Chapter 13 debtors to also participate in these IDRs, as they're called. That has softened over the last several years, but there still remains problems with the structure of Chapter 13, uh, whether student loans are allowed to be paid at a greater rate than other unsecured creditors. And this is under separate classification which is allowed as long as that is is not an unfair discrimination. And the courts uh, across the country are all over the board on this, with some allowing it as a matter of fact. In fact, I I believe recently in in Florida, in the Southern District of Florida, they've instituted a program to to systematize this this payment, where other courts have flat out forbidden it. And so one of our recommendations relates to this is that it would, get past the separate classification difficulties by suggesting that student loans should be treated as a new priority, an 11th priority under the bankruptcy code, Um, but that those would be just like assigned domestic support obligations, which are child support and other uh, claims like that that have been assigned to a state government from from a parent instead. Those are allowed to be treated as a priority but are not required to be paid during the length of a Chapter 13 plan, unlike taxes, for example, which have to be paid when they're a priority claim. This would allow debtors to propose to pay their student loans in full if they could afford that to perhaps pay according to the income-driven repayment plan if they could afford that or not pay, pay them any better than the other unsecured creditors with whatever the balance is surviving. And the point of this would be to allow Chapter 13 debtors to make progress towards the forgiveness or cancellation that comes with the income-driven repayment plans, and that comes at, depending on the type of employment after 10, 20, or 25 years for the borrower.
0: Yeah, and so now if I can move us to thinking uh, away from the statute um, and the statutory changes to uh, recommendations the commission makes at the administrative level. Uh, we've been talking about changes that the Congress would have to enact. Congress would have to uh, make some of the amendments we've been talking about. But until Congress does act, there's a lot that the Department of Education could do. And the Commission suggests the Department of Education adopt some bright line rules in administering uh, the current law. Uh, Bruce, could you talk a little bit about what the Commission's recommendations are as to these bright line rules?
1: Sure. Um, the the idea here is, I kind of indicated earlier, that the current statute has an exception to the non-dischargeability for undue hardship and it has been kind of talked about on, on this podcast. That's not exactly the a, a clean standard that can be applied. Lots of people have different ideas, and we'll talk about that a little bit more. But, you know, especially with the Department of Education, uh, with those um, government back loans, they have Positions and as as Ed has indicated, they've kind of come up with income uh, dependent uh, repayment plans. What the Commission said is that listen, there are lots of people in this game. There are lots of people who um, are are interested in terms of the programs, particularly the Department of Education. But when it comes to bankruptcy, bankruptcy being the kind of the total solution for an individual's uh, uh, problem, uh, financial problems. That one of the things that should happen is that there should be some bright line rules applicable to creditors with respect to the presence of or the um, the discussion of undue hardship and the commission report came up with two basic uh, guidelines, one based on disability determinations outside of bankruptcy, and one based on if you will poverty based guidelines or at least the debtor's income. The first uh, we know that the Social Security Administration and the Veterans Administration um, have, uh, under their charge, the, the requirements that, you know, they find upon uh, individuals' requests that people are disabled and that disability uh, entitles them to various benefits. Well, the first thing the, the commission uh, report suggested is that if they get... Um, Disability benefits under the Social Security Act or 100% disability rating uh, from the Department of Veterans Affairs, that should be a bright line rule that there is undue hardship. I mean, at that point, you back off, you don't, you say, okay, it's undue hardship, it will be dischargeable because there's been a determination by an outside agency as to the ability of the individual to go forward. Uh, with respect to the poverty based guidelines, it's a little bit more complicated, uh, but in essence, the uh, as a kind of a working rule, again, going back to the seven-year uh, notion that Dalier talked about, if the average household income for a debtor over the last seven years has been 175% of the federal poverty guidelines or less, then there is undue hardship. And again, um, for purposes of background, for a household of one, 175% of income is about $21,245 a year. Not exactly a princely sum. So even at 175% of the federal poverty guidelines might sound like, oh, you're going way over the poverty guidelines. It's not a, it's not a great amount. Uh, secondly, that percentage would increase to 200% um, if the borrower's only um, uh, source of income was be from Social Security benefits or retirement fund, or if the borrower provided support for an elderly. Chronically ill or disabled household member or the members of the borrower's immediate family. Again, the idea here is, is, to, is to use the federal poverty guidelines, or at least a multiple of them, um, as well as outside indicators to show cases where there should be no doubt, should be no question, should be no challenge as to the fact that uh, repaying the additional loans uh, either are, are going to be frustrated by the level of disability or the level of income that the person has attempted to achieve over seven years, um, and thus uh, you know, not, if you will, pile on, if you will, additional burdens on those individuals.
3: So, and one of the things ahead, I would mention that that has developed since we made these recommendations or while we were making these recommendations, particularly regarding the disability aspect is that borrowers can get what's called an administrative discharge or a total permanent disability discharge of their student loans if they meet certain requirements related to Social Security and VA benefits for disability. However, that results in a cancellation of their student loans and can be a taxable event. Previously, prior to the most recent changes to the tax code, if the borrower was insolvent, which meant assets were less than liabilities they wouldn't have to pay those taxes or if they filed bankruptcy however my understanding is that insolvency exception has been taken away so you end up with borrowers who may be disabled on as veterans or uh, social security uh, and they are able to outside of bankruptcy get relief from their student loans but then owe the IRS and so by joining this with bankruptcy I think that becomes an important solution for people.
0: Yeah, that's a, I think that's a great point. So, um, Dalia, I, I don't know if you had anything to add on the administrative side of um, uh, the changes.
2: Yeah, so um, at the time that we were working on this report, the Department of Education asked for, um, you know, put a request for information out asking for sort of what could they do um, uh, with regards to student loans and bankruptcy. And the commission submitted something um, which was essentially the recommendations uh, the administrative recommendations that um, Bruce was talking about. At the same time, I also worked on it sort of, in some ways, um, uh, broader, in other ways, narrower, narrower sense of um, recommendations uh, of things that the department could do, basically situations in which they should um, just give up if someone is claiming undue hardship, and mostly along the same lines, um, as uh, Bruce was talking about, um, some examples that are slightly different from yours, uh, or from the commissions is that you know if the debtor's income is less than 150 percent of the federal poverty level, and they didn't receive a degree from their institution or the institution closed, or if they owe less than five thousand dollars on the loan, or if they've been repaying that loan or that loan has been outstanding rather for more than 25 years, we think that the um, department um, should just uh, you know should publish rules or guidance and say that in these situations. long as we can prove that these things are true, um, you know, without extensive and costly discovery, we will um, acquiesce to a showing of undue hardship. And part of the reason here is, um, you know, for efficiency and savings um, to the public, really, um, because right now there's a lot of evidence that the department has been fighting discharge actions from people who really are in um, dire straits and who, um, you know, the, the issue with undue hardship being um, a standard that varies across the country and that generally is thought to be uh, a difficult standard, a harsh standard to me, has come about because of primarily the department um, you know, fighting these cases. Um, and uh, we just don't think that's really, or at least I personally don't think that's really a good use of our uh, taxpayer dollars.
1: Let me, I, I, let me just add a, a personal yeah. note on that. Uh, when I was a judge, we had a program in place in our district to mediate um, adversary proceedings such as determination of undue hardship, um, we actually had a, a showdown with some of the educational loan people because they would show up to the mediations and they would say, um, you take our proposal or we're not going to do anything. And we'd look at them and we'd say, well, this is a mediation. You're supposed to come you know, with the ability to compromise. And they say, we don't compromise. These are our standards. Um, and so th- this kind of underscores Dalle's notion that there may be kind of some pushing of the envelope um, beyond what's reasonable. Yeah, I, I mean, and I, as yeah, a practitioner,
3: yeah. you know, as a practitioner, this is you know, there's been the studies that have shown that more stu- more debtors in bankruptcy would discharge their student loans if they would try, but this has really felt like it was specifically directed towards discouraging us at, at, as attorneys from trying because. If we know that it is going to be a knockdown, drag out fight full of discovery, then even for the neediest of debtors, that increases the cost to the point a- 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 to the point where our client can't afford to pay us, in which case we're then doing something pro bono, which is laudatory when when folks do that but is not always a long-term business model to stay in practice and continuing to help folks. So that's really one of the things we're trying to encourage a more reasonable approach from this.
2: Okay, one more. Go ahead, Dolly. I, yeah, I, just, no, I, I want to move us on, can, but go ahead. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, the the other thing um, uh, about this is that really the debtors who can seek dischargeability actions have um, resources. That others don't. Some of those resources are money to be able to pay um, an attorney, or the know-how, or the at least feeling like they they can acquire the know-how to actually prosecute the case themselves. That is an access to justice issue that is really squarely, you know, we already have some of them or many of them in bankruptcy and the rest of the legal system, but really here, the department with these sort of administrative recommendations, the Department of Education could do a lot, um, you know, by itself, Um, and so uh, because it it holds 90% of the $1.56 trillion in outstanding debt. Um, so really, if, if it actually just stepped away in situations in which um, it was not worth it, and that was the aim of these recommendations from the commission and the ones that I'm now writing up in, in a, a Colorado Review article, um, if, if they stepped away from those, um, then they would actually be really helping those who need it the most.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the things I appreciate about this conversation is showing that what the commission was doing was um, in the student loan area was complementary, and and with a lot of other groups that were doing uh, similar things, or or there were a lot of complementary, a lot of ideas that were out there, and the commission came to together as this diverse group of experts and issued these recommendations, and that takes us to to the kind of the last point I wanted to talk about was what we kept referring to as best interpretations of the existing statute. And I think the commission recognized there were lots of ways and lots of places, not just with student loans, um, where there was ambiguity in the existing law, and it would be useful to have a commission of experts say, okay, a supermajority of this commission thinks the best interpretation of the existing statute is. Such and so, and, and that's certainly true in the student loan area. There's, of course, the, the Bruner test, referring to the to the uh, court case, the Bruner case, which is viewed, I think, by just about everyone as a fairly strict interpretation of the phrase undue hardship. Uh, we don't have time probably to get into all the details of the Bruner test, but the commission considered the Bruner test, but it didn't recommend ab- abandoning the Bruner test. Um, Bruce, I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what the commission suggests courts should do, again, under the existing statute in the absence of a congressional change and and, uh, what the commission recommendation was about implementing the Bruner test.
1: Um, Sure. Um, Well, first, a real quick review of Bruner. Bruner was a 1982 case interpreting the statute as it then existed. Um, Recall from my earlier discussion that meant that a student loan could be discharged either for undue hardship or if it was more than five years old. In Brunner's case, um, she filed uh, a bankruptcy with a master's degree in social work, $9,000 in student loans, and a year later files bankruptcy. The court then uh, put out a three-pronged test, one that the debtor couldn't maintain based on current income and expenses. A minimal standard of living, that has been subject to a lot of discussions. I tell my students when I teach it, it's kind of like an eat dirt standard, that unless you're so poor that you have to eat dirt, you don't qualify. Um, And not good dirt. People are laughing on the podcast when they hear that. Um, Two, that additional circumstances exist that the state of affairs is likely to persist for a significant portion of the repayment period, which again, remember, is usually about 10 years. And that the debtor has made a good faith effort to repay those loans. I mean, I think those are the the, the commission thought that those were good considerations, but wanted to refine them somewhat. First, uh, with respect to uh, what to focus on, the focus really should be. I mean, these loans are initially made as ten-year loans, and the successive congressional uh, both uh, limitations on and then finally elimination of of the time period has basically made the horizon that people look at is the rest of the debtor's life rather than kind of the 10 years that was uh, in the original debt as created. And so um, we, we tend to look at that that's a significant factor that actually distinguishes uh, Brunner on a very large level because if in fact someone is, is only a minimal standard of living with you know, five years or seven years, depending on what time period you pick, it's a lot different than saying for the rest of their life. And so, first point: focus on just a ten-year horizon. Second point: it's not a poverty-level discussion. Undue hardship doesn't necessarily mean, um, as some courts have determined, it, you know, that it's a that you should really be uh, poverty or you know, unable to kind of. Um, um, protect your interests and the interests of your loved ones, but rather we should look at reasonable living expenses, much like what 1325B does now in uh, Chapter 13 cases. And so kind of a stepping back from uh, saying that someone should should be near abject poverty because there's really nothing requiring that in the statute. And finally, rather than requiring a kind of a good faith effort, I mean, a good faith effort back in 1982 Meant a lot meant something very different when you had a five-year kind of limitation or a 10-year note. Um, and so for all sorts of reasons, the commission believed that this really shouldn't be kind of a good faith effort to kind of pay it back because that's you know, presumably what would be built in and everything else, but rather to to flip that in some respects to say that the debtor hasn't committed bad faith, that is to say, you know not like Bruner, where they filed. Uh, the case less than a year after they got their degree, um, because what's happened by requiring good faith is that the Department of Education and others have come in and said, "Well, look, look at all these programs we have. You know, we don't know if it's good faith unless they've tried these programs for a long period of time." Well, there's really nothing in an undue hardship that that even remotely kind of says that that's what you should be looking at. And so, what we would what we would say is is you know take a look at um, the original maturity of the loan take a look at reasonable living expenses and take a look at whether or not the debtor is in bad faith as we talked about earlier which we think the relatively low if, uh, uh, I mean a number of cases out of the 750,000 cases filed every year so the idea is bruner has a good structure but the implementation has been so fractured and without um uh, a, a key reference or understanding of the statute at the time, it needs to be reinterpreted along the lines that I stated.
2: Yeah,
0: and and as we mentioned, there's a lot of um, best interpretations and recommendations in, in the commissioner report. One of them is in Chapter 13 plans, largely along the lines that Ed outlined earlier, saying many of the recommendations that the commission thinks Congress could make are already written into the existing law, and I don't. I think we're running out of time; we won't have time to discuss those in more detail. So I'll leave those to the commission report, because I, I want to give you all one uh, kind of final question to to chime in on, if if you're interested. Which is, you, you all spent a lot of time uh, working on the commission report. Um, all four of us on the call can attest to the number of, of meetings we all attended and and the like, and the time we put in. And now that the report's out, what would you say to somebody who says, okay, you know, I've read this, this all seems sensible, but what can I do?
3: Well, I guess I'd quote somebody else who had a recent report and say, read the report, it speaks for itself. Um, Because I think we really did put a lot of thought into it. And while I don't recall, Bob, you, you probably do better all of the votes on these things, but when it came to the student loan, this was one where there was a very high degree of consensus across the board that things needed to be changed to improve how student loans are treated in bankruptcy because it's becoming a bigger and bigger problem. And so I think the more um attorneys and trustees and judges look to the look to this to find creative solutions where they can in 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 the code and to pressure. Um, their members of Congress, uh, you know, to make statutory changes and the Department of Education, uh, it will improve the recoveries for 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 creditors and the relief that debtors get and really need.
1: Um, I, I really can't add much to what Ed said, but I would I would say this: um, anybody who cares about the system really should be an educator, be an educator of their representatives uh, in Congress. They should be an educator of other. Um, uh, players in the system, um, and if they're a judge, they should be an educator with respect to how the system should work. That is to say, even if we don't have the congressional changes we suggested, which, quite frankly, I'm a little bit skeptical that we'll get through this Congress. But um, you know, we can still. The report tries to say, listen. This is how you interpret the statute, and this is how the statute should be interpreted in light of what's going on. I think that part of the report can be taken up um, with either the support of the report itself, or you know, just good understanding of how one interprets a statute.
0: And Dalia, last word to you on what people should do with the uh, when they after they read the report.
2: Okay, so I'll just focus on judges. I think that our interpretation um, or or sort of good faith best interpretation of the Brenner test um, is a really appropriate way for a judge to interpret the Brenner test. In particular in light of, um, as Bruce was talking about the the timing of the Brenner test and how much has changed, not just in the, the statute, but also in just the landscape. Of student loans um, and and the number of people who have them and how long they will have them for, um, and so I think this is great uh, fodder both for practitioners but really judges um, to to sort of use our um, arguments and think about them and hopefully use them in cases.
0: Well, thank you all all uh, all of you uh, for joining us. I'll thank you for uh, the panelists and thank you uh, to our listeners for joining us on a very special ABI podcast about the ABI. Commission on Consumer Bankruptcies recommendations on student loans.